This is episode number 497 with Benjamin Todd, founder and CEO of 80,000 Hours. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We are exceptionally lucky to have the brilliant and inspiring Ben Todd as our guest on the show today. Ben has invested the past decade researching how people can have the most meaningful and impactful careers. His research, however, is not purely academic. It is applied to massive effect via his charity, 80,000 Hours, which is named after the typical number of hours worked in a human lifetime. The Y Combinator-backed charity has reached over 8 million people via its richly detailed, exceptionally thoughtful, and 100% free content and coaching. Thousands of people are known to have dramatically changed their career paths in a more personally meaningful or globally impactful direction thanks to guidance from Ben and his team. Yours truly is one of them, and we'll discuss that on the show. Today's episode should be of great interest to anyone, since I imagine basically every person aspires to have a more meaningful and impactful life. To that end, Ben will share with us an effective process for evaluating next steps in our career, a data-driven guide to the most valuable skills for one to obtain regardless of our profession, as well as specific impact-maximizing career options that are available to data scientists and related professionals such as machine learning engineers and software developers. All right, you ready for an especially inspiring episode? Let's go. Ben, welcome to the Super Data Science Show. I'm so excited to have you on. We haven't caught up personally in years, so we're going to be doing a bit of that on air, but I promise the audience is going to love it because <laughs> you're fascinating. So first Thank off, you. how are you doing? Where in the world are you? Great. Yeah, I'm coming to you from the 80,000 Hours podcast basement, um, <laughs> kind of windowless room where we record all of our podcasts with lots of nice sound padding. Yeah, people should check out the YouTube version of this just to see. It's one of the nicest spaces that we've had, that any guest has had for recording it. So nice, nicely well, done. Well, it used, yeah, it used to actually would be like boxes behind here, but I had them, <laughs> I had to get them cleared away for, we felt like a fake plant back there. Like oh, it looks plant. good. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess in the windowless room, fake plants are the only thing that would do. Well, sorry, no, it's, it's actually a real plant, but it's not normally there. Because yeah, like you say, it would it, it wouldn't it would it would die pretty fast. I think the plant has been planted there. <laughs> uh, uh, great. So uh, we've known each other for a long time, more than ten years. So uh, I finished up at Oxford in two thousand twelve, and it was near my final years there. So maybe around two thousand ten, you and I met because we were both in this. Uh, investment challenge. So a big investment manager in London called Orbis, they, it was this competitive process where they invited applicants. And I don't remember if we had interviews, but they selected a group of 10 people. 
And then it was a really cool program. It was actually one of the most interesting parts of my entire PhD. And totally, you know, it was unrelated to the PhD, but working with these 10 uh, bright people from Oxford from all over the campus. And for 12 months, we managed a simulated portfolio. But based on how your simulated portfolio performed, you made real money with no downside. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, so that, it's tempting to put it all into like a very high risk thing, isn't it? And just <laughs> yeah, uh, there was some. There was an upper limit on how much you could earn, um, but that was it. Was a really cool experience, and for me, it was a useful one for me, my career because my immediate job after my PhD was working as a trader at a hedge fund. Different kind of thing. So Orbis was doing long only uh, holding of stocks. Um, uh, whereas at the hedge fund, by its very nature, you're doing we were doing like sub second type trading, um, and it was impactful for you too, right? I mean, I think you got a job offer from Orbis, right? Yeah, I did some internships with them, and that would have been a that might well have been what my career would have been if I hadn't gone to work at eighty thousand hours instead. Right. And yeah, so then following almost perfectly along with his narrative, <laughs> two years after me doing trading for two years, I was like, I don't think this is for me. I don't think that earning money for its own sake is something that I can keep doing and that I'm motivated about. And at that time, I was looking for making some kind of impact in my life. And so I would go on Saturdays to the trading floor and I would watch videos on YouTube of Doctors Without Borders. Um, because I'd, for a long time in my life, I'd had this idea of uh, working um, as a doctor. And I'd kind of, after my PhD, medical sciences PhD, decided, no, I'm not gonna do that. Been in school long enough. Let's do the hedge fund thing. And so my intention, so I, I quit working at this hedge fund after two years. My intention was to move back to Canada from New York and finally study medicine. But in those few months, I had a call with you. <laughs> so it was, I think, early days for 80,000 hours. You guys were starting to figure out your process. And so you offered very kindly to me to take an hour and help me reflect on my career and what I'd like to do and what my options are. And I remember because I was sitting... Uh, I was sitting in an apartment in the East Village that I only lived in for a few weeks uh, because I last minute decided maybe I'll stay in New York a little bit longer and see what else is here instead of doing medicine. And uh, I remember having the conversation in that apartment and it was hugely beneficial for me. So what I've been doing since, the decision to become a data scientist, to try that out, which I've now been doing for seven years and absolutely love. So thank you, Ben. That... <laughs> all came out of that i mean not all came out of that conversation but it was a huge part of my process in that in that phase we're going to talk in this episode about your 80,000 hours process give people tons of career guidance both generally as uh, you know you know general structures as well as specific um, advice for data scientists on how they can make the biggest possible impact in their careers but anyway so thank you very much it's actually because of you that I became a data scientist, became host of the Super Data Science Show, and that anybody's listening to this today. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I, I didn't know all that. I just, yeah, for my own curiosity, what, what specifically was it? Because 
like, um, yeah, we noticed that around that time, a lot of people who'd done science PhDs and wanted to do something else, they were starting to switch into data science. And that was quite a popular option that was emerging. And so I guess we were telling a lot of people about that at that time. Was, was that it or was this something else? Well, it's interesting. I remember you took notes in a Google Doc in front of my eyes while we did that session. And I still have that, I'm sure. So I could look it up. And also, you're a very fastidious uh, person, so I'm sure you have that uh, filed away somewhere neatly. Um, sure, yeah, it'll be in Drive somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so we could look up the exact things, but going from memory, there one of the great draws of going into data science as opposed to, say, doing a medical degree was that I could start making an impact right away instead of studying for MCATs for a year, then doing a minimum four-year degree, and then you've got all the residency stuff before you really start being able to be on your own. And so data science was this opportunity to get started right away, having an impact using a skill set that I already had. Having a PhD in the sciences, I had exactly the background that a lot of employers are looking for when they're looking for a data scientist. And so the summary point, I guess, that came out of that call with you was, why not try this? It seems like a good opportunity. You're already qualified for it and spot on. I, you know, I can't imagine I'm being a doctor now. I'm so glad that I'm a data scientist. Uh, yeah, it's really worked out. So thanks, man. And so tell us about, so 80,000 hours, so around that time. So that was around 2015 that we would have had that conversation, 2014, actually. So after you finished your degree at Oxford, how did you end up going down instead of on the investment manager path? Because I remember you were a talented investment manager. You, you were extremely thoughtful and well-prepared for any discussion that we had around investments um, in that uh, Orbis uh, simulation group. And so you could have you gone and presumably been a star investment manager. You certainly seemed like that. But instead, you decided to go down this path of helping people with their careers. So what happened? Um, yeah, we, I was just trying to think about, yeah, I mean, I think like you, I wanted to find a job that was like enjoyable and paid the bills, but also that made a kind of bigger contribution to the world or society. And yeah, in 2011, yeah, so I guess we would have graduated in the same year. Like I also left Oxford in 2012. and. I met Will McCaskill at Oxford and we were both wondering right. what do we do? What do we do next? He was a philosophy PhD student and I was, um, I was doing physics and philosophy undergrad. And yeah, we were just like, you know, there's many things we might be able to do, which one would actually have the most impact. And there's just like, not really any, we can not really find any advice about actually even really trying to compare different paths we might go down. And we thought, you know, you could work in investing and, um, through the donations you could make in that kind of career, you might be able to fund several people to work in a charity. So that, right. you know, that seemed like that could be a high impact path. But, you know, we also thought like, if you look at history, researchers have often done a lot of, had a lot of impact, people in governmental policy, um, working in charity as well as kind of an obvious option. And like, how could we actually compare these different, these different paths? Um, so yeah, we just basically started thinking about it ourselves. And in 2011, <laughs> we gave our first ever talk in Oxford. And that was like actually still our most successful ever talk. So like, I think in the end, maybe like five oh, or six wow. people totally, totally changed their career paths from that talk. Um, we've actually like 
two of those people now work at 80,000 hours like 10 years later um and yeah some of them asked us so i think rich yeah a guy called richard batty also came up afterwards and was like i think you should start an organization about this and, and then we did yeah and then i started yeah that that was a big decision for me like should i do this non-profit path or do the investing path or i was also wondering should i do a phd i was kind of interested in like climate climate economics at that mm-hmm. time so those are the three things i chose i was choosing between but um yeah i like settled on on this path yeah and the the idea being if i can just help like one person switch into a higher impact career path then that's like you know twice as i've like doubled my impact already <laughs> yeah yeah This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science. Yes, our online membership platform for transitioning into data science and the namesake of the podcast itself. In the Super Data Science platform, we recently launched our new 99-day data scientist study plan, a cheat sheet with week-by-week instructions to get you started as a data scientist in as few as 15 weeks. Each week, you complete tasks in four categories. The first is super data science courses to become familiar with the technical foundations of data science. The second is hands-on projects to fill up your portfolio and showcase your knowledge in your job applications. The third is a career toolkit with actions to help you stand out in your job hunting. And the fourth is additional curated resources such as articles, books, and podcasts to expand your learning and stay up to date. To devise this curriculum, we sat down with some of the best data scientists as well as many of our most successful students and came up with the ideal 99-day data scientist study plan to teach you everything you need to succeed so you can skip the planning and simply focus on learning. We believe the program can be completed in 99 days and we challenge you to do it. Are you ready? Go to superdatascience.com challenge, download the 99-day study plan and use it with your Super Data Science subscription to get started as a data scientist in under 100 days. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. So how many people, I, I've seen some of these stats come out. I don't know how it happened if I saw you post about it on LinkedIn or, but you have some assessments. I mean, you must have to do this as kind of as a charity. And also I want to kind of get into the, you're, you're also, you're, you went through Y Combinator, which seems like, so that, that's going to take us off on a big tangent. So before, so before we start talking about Y Combinator and how charities can go through um, an accelerator like that, uh, first tell me, how many people has 80,000 hours impacted roughly uh, since you started it? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like readership, I think we've had over 8 million people visit the site at some point. But then, yeah, in terms of like the thing we really try to ultimately do is help people switch career paths and... Over a thousand people have told us that they've um, changed, made a big career path change due to us. But yeah, I mean, we, we haven't caught everyone because I don't think you're in that survey. So <laughs> no, I think I am. Yeah. I think oh, I, maybe, I do remember okay. filling that survey in. Yeah, I think I got an email okay, awesome. at some point years ago. And I think I would have waxed lyrically about what a wonderful experience <laughs> was and what impact it had on me. But you're absolutely right. You couldn't possibly capture all of the people that you've impacted. But even just to know that a thousand people um, have uh, actively said, uh, you know, a thousand is an absolutely enormous number. If you tried to like imagine a thousand people packed into a room and all the different things that they were doing and are doing now, uh, that's yeah, know. yeah. The the 
the way I kind of actually think about our impact is we think it's like almost a little bit like startup investing where a couple of the people we helped turn out to go on and have these like really outsized impact. And that's where a lot of our impact comes from in the long term. So right. one example that's been on my mind recently is um, Sam Bankman-Fried, who is a mathematician at MIT. And yeah, he realized he was a really good fit for quantitative trading at a hedge fund. And he like found, found a job through people he met in our community. And, you know, like he turned out to be a much better fit for that path than me. So I'm like really glad I did the nonprofit thing and he did that. But he later <laughs> ended up founding one of now it's one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges, um, FTX. And according to Forbes, um, he has currently worth about $9 billion. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> which um, he's planning to give like all away, basically. Um, he was already one of Biden's largest donors in the last election. He's already given millions of dollars. Wow. Um, he's like still under 30. to give. Yeah. So that's, that's the, that's the earning to give path. And I mean, yeah, that's obviously, he obviously donated a lot more than I ever could have. <laughs> and <laughs> so, hopefully some donations to 80,000 hours. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he did donate to us in, in the early days. Um, yeah, now, now, we're, now we're actually, we're, we're, we're funded already. So we haven't actually had any donations from him recently, but. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think this is really interesting for a number of reasons. So first of all, when you make that decision, okay, I'm not going to be an investment manager. I'm not going to pursue a PhD in climate economics. I'm going to start a charity. So what, if you want to do that, how do you think about funding in those early stages? And then tell us about the journey to eventually um, that leading to Y Combinator and how people are probably I guess you should introduce what Y Combinator is, but then also explain that they have this charitable um, aspect. And then if I haven't asked too many questions already, <laughs> the last one would be, um, you know, how is it that, you know, you can say, well, we're fully funded. Uh, you know, we don't even need donations now. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm interested in all of those things. Yeah. So, well, we, so in the early days, we were quite lucky because there was this community in Oxford called the Giving What We Can community, which is um, people who give 10% of their income to charities they think are most effective. And so several of our, we, we managed to get several donors from that community early on, and they kind of gave us our seed funding. Um, and that was part of, yeah, definitely gave us the confidence to, to carry on, like seeing that early traction and getting that early funding. So I was able to go full time though. Yeah. I mean, in, I think in the first year, our salaries were only 15,000 pounds. Um, so, you know, we did, we did put it together on a, sh on a shoestring, is, but <laughs> yeah, that is not a lot to live on. Uh, that converts to something like probably 25,000 us dollars. No, no, not even yeah, like 20,000, 20,000 yeah. 20, us dollars. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, though, I mean, we, we, you know, we just, I was an undergrad at the time, so I would have been living on about that much as a student, but <laughs> right, right, um, right. yeah. So, I mean, we did eventually, we've, we've raised those over time, but um, yeah, that, that was how we got started. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess we're, I guess the other way we're in a very fortunate position is like this broader effective altruism community grew up that we're also part of. And that's a community of people who are trying to use reason and evidence to find the best ways of improving the world in general. Mm -hmm. And we found donors in that community who, you know, kind of most donors, they're very like passion motivated. They just, you know, they do something they find interesting and they'll support it for a while. And then, you know, they might get interested in something else and it's quite a fickle funding source. But our donors are much more like, if we show them we're changing careers and getting impact, they will keep giving us money and they're kind of willing to scale us up in line with our impact. 
Wow. So it is actually like a scalable funding model, which is a very fortunate position to be in. So then what about Y Combinator? So I guess I can give a little bit of context. So for listeners who aren't aware, Y Combinator is by far the most well-known startup accelerator around. So you can submit anyone who's listening right now. If you have a startup idea, you can find the Y Combinator website and you can submit a I don't know exactly how it works. You probably know, Ben, but like you submit like a pitch deck or something, answer some questions. Yeah, it's, just a, it's an application form, yeah. No. And based on that, it's extremely competitive. But if you get into the program, you get some funding in exchange for typically they take some equity. But uh, the big thing about it is the network and the mentorship. Some of the best known venture capitalists in the world are heavily involved with Y Combinator. And so you know, in terms of getting that kind of mentorship, that kind of exposure, that opportunity to scale, I think it's it's one of the most uh, potentially impactful uh, things that you could get involved with as a startup founder. So um, I only know about through 80,000 hours that they also will fund some charities like yours. Yeah, and so I think they started, I think it was in 2014, uh, the first charity to ever go through was called Watsi. And they, as far as I know, they still, every year they, they have between kind of one and four charities uh, or nonprofits that, that, that go into the program. And, and you know, they, they just do that because they think this is a way for them to have, have some extra impact. Cool. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, my last kind of question there around funding is... Yeah, the last one was just like how you know, maybe, and maybe you don't need to go into much detail, but just kind of interesting for me that you've kind of you've reached this point where I guess eighty thousand hours is kind of self sufficient. Like, so you had this donor model for a long time, but now maybe through the experiences, learning how to scale through Y Combinator and maybe startup related strategies, you're now at this fully funded stage. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess there's a few things. We could talk about with that but like we definitely learned a lot from y combinator it like it felt like it was almost this whole kind of toolkit or worldview for doing things in the world um and it was like very inspiring i think i was just seeing the other day i can't quite remember the figure but i think they've now created over 41 billion dollar companies um wow and so yeah. just being in this room full of people who are all just like we're gonna set up a billion dollar company and like they might actually succeed it's just like very, I don't know. I mean, it, uh, we were almost a bit jealous of the, you know, how fast the for profits can move. Right. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we learned a lot. I mean, yeah, one, one example was just like, they were very, we kind of figured, well, if you want to build an organization, then you should hire people, right? Because that's what organizations do. You hire a lot of people. Um, but they were, they're actually like very against hiring early on. And the, cause the idea is like, you really want to have your model down before you hire. So before you have product market fit, you should avoid hiring and just have the founders focus on that. Cause they're the best people, right. best, best place people to figure out your model. And then later you try and like hire as quickly as you possible as possible. And that like really cool. changed our strategy. Well, so one really big thing that we probably should have mentioned right off the bat that I haven't yet is where the name 80,000 hours comes from. So, yeah. So that's how many, roughly how many hours you have in your working life. So uh, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, and over 40 years, about 80,000. 
And, and so yeah, I guess the, that, yeah, yeah, go on, go ahead. I mean, it basically it ties in directly to your mission, right? Yeah, like one point is, you know, if you would spend six minutes debating where to go for dinner for two hours, then the equivalent would, for your career would be spending 4,000 hours thinking about it and researching and exploring options. Right. Um, and so it's just like this really big decision that's really worth thinking about. Um, but even more than that, we actually think, you know, if you want to live a good ethical life, then actually the thing you should focus the most on is what you should do with your career because your career is actually the, the biggest resource you have for affecting change in the world. It's like, because it's so, so much time, so much of your time, it's like, you know, it's more than all the time you'll spend with your friends and like eating dinner and like watching Netflix, like all that put together, um, especially like while you're an adult, you'll probably actually spend more time at work. And that means even if you can just increase the impact of your career a little bit, that could have, you know, really big effects on um, improving things in the world. Cool. Yeah, I love it. And I've always loved the name from the beginning too. So we're going to get into some specific data science advice. You and I are chatting before the show and Ben, you prepared so much for the audience. <laughs> I can't wait for you to share these data science specific tips for them on how they can specifically make a, an enormous impact with their 80,000 hours. But generally speaking, what is the kind of advice that you give to people? How, how does 80,000 hours shape people's careers? Yeah, so one way of approaching it is at a very high level. We think what drives your impact is the problem you focus on how, and how pressing it is, how effective the solutions are you use to address that problem, how much leverage you get on those solutions, and then your personal fit. So how successful will you be in the career? Will you stick with it? Will you enjoy it? All those kinds of, all those kinds of things. And so basically what we're trying to do is help people find better answers to all of those four, four questions. So find something that fits them better, has more leverage, more effective solution, or um, a more pressing problem. Cool. Yeah, it's a sensible model. Makes a lot of sense. All right. That was kind of a redundant sentence there. <laughs> it's a sensible model. It makes a lot of sense. All right. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, let's talk about data scientists specifically. Uh, let's cut to the chase. How can data scientists best have an impact in their careers? Yeah, so maybe just I'd start by saying, you know, data science is a really valuable skill. And so that's already a big, that's a big part of having a good career as well as trying to actually build up what we, we call it career capital. So it's like skills, connections, credentials, reputation mm -hmm. that you can then use to have an impact or to do something that you find um, satisfying as well. That's actually something that idea uh, from our hour long conversation, whatever, seven years ago, that idea of building career capital, I use that constantly in <laughs> okay, thinking awesome. about my own career. Yeah, there's, I mean, we haven't really talked since then. So you don't, you don't know that. But in my own mind, with what I choose to do each week, each year with my career, it is driven by that idea of building career capital. Being a host of the Super Data Science Show, it doesn't pay very <laughs> much. <laughs> but there's a lot of listeners and it's well produced and I really enjoy doing it. And so, you know, the kind of the experience that I get out of this and maybe indirectly some kind of network effects that come out of it, that's why it, it was from that kind of discussion, this idea of career capital that when Kirill was uh, going to stop being host of the Super Data Science Show and he asked me if I'd like to take over, I was able to say instantly, 
It wasn't, I didn't have to go away and think about it. It was like, yeah, of course. That is like, I don't know if anyone's ever given me a career capital opportunity like this. <laughs> yeah. And like one way of seeing that is if you, you know, if you look at these studies about when people hit their peak productivity, you know, it's actually like around 45 or even in the sixties in some careers. And that just really? shows that, you know, you can keep, you can actually, you can actually keep increasing your skills for decades. And so this means that uh, especially early career, one of the biggest priorities should be to get career capital. Wow. I didn't know that because I've seen studies, you know, there's things out there, you probably know about these studies. So, you know, when do Nobel prize winning researchers make their big, um, uh, finding or when do the big, the fields prize winners in mathematics, when do they make their mathematical uh, discovery? And it's, I thought it was almost always in your mid thirties. Well, so it depends on the subject. So like okay. basically once we, once we hit our early twenties, unfortunately, our like our intelligence starts going down pretty sharply. <laughs> um, but, oh, but like your connections and your knowledge and what's called like crystallized intelligence keeps going up. Um, and so your sweet spot is when those two things intersect. And so it depends on the balance, how how important the balance of those two things are in the career that you're focused on. So so like mathematics and theoretical physics and also lyrical poetry, interestingly, like they peak fairly early, oh. like often in the twenties. Um, wow. Whereas like on the other end, something like politics, you know, you can't even right. become president unless you're 70 these days. So that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the peak right at the end. And that's because you need this, you need this uh, reputation and you need connections and they take a long time to build. Um, and yeah, there, there is some evidence these ages are actually going older over time, which, you know, could be because you just need more knowledge to get to the cutting edge of a field these days. Right. I also think there's something that I think about as a societal thing, we're getting a little bit off track here. So I, I do, I, we will get back to the data science making an impact in a second again. But something that I think about a lot is how as a society, of course, longevity has increased enormously over the last 200 years. So uh, 200 years ago, if you were born in France, you had your expected lifespan was 30, 32 years, something like that. And now it's mid eighties. And so not only are we living longer, so as a result of knowing more about nutrition, having access to food, medical treatments, but it occurs to me, isn't it also conceivable? I don't know if there's studies around this, but by being more aware of our nutrition, by exercising better, by getting more sleep, uh, by not having stresses of just trying to get food on the table for the next meal, Presumably, not only are we living longer, but maybe that thing about intelligence declining at 20, <laughs> maybe that's, yeah, being extended out by all these so, so, uh, social society level factors. Yeah, I haven't seen research about that, but I would, I would hope that people's kind of like healthy lifespan, you know, is increasing as well. Um, so I'd hope that kind of our peak functioning is not, is also going, going later. Just always <laughs> trying to come up with reasons why I'm not getting dumber and crossing my fingers. Um, but maybe I'm just so dumb that it's easy to think that. Uh, it's going to get easier and easier all the time. All right. So, um, okay. So data science, it's a valuable skill set. Um, you're talking about career capital. And then I completely um, took over the conversation. So I'll, I'll let you keep going. No, no, but I, I, think, that's, I think that's an important concept to cover. Um, and then... Yeah, so we could kind of think about the four factors, like you could think of data science is your route to getting leverage. So that, that factor is already 
somewhat covered. But then the thing I'd really encourage people to think about is which problems in the world are biggest and most neglected. And, you know, we actually think that your choice of problem is the thing that most determines your impact. And like, that's not how people normally approach this, the kind of normal advice if you're like, well, should I work on climate change or education or health or politics or whatever, whatever. Um, the normal advice is like, you can't really compare these things. Just choose something that you're interested in that motivates you and just do that. That's the best we can do. Um, but we actually think if you step back, actually, you know, some issues are way bigger than others and some are way more neglected than others. And if you can find that sweet spot, then that's one of the biggest things you can do to increase your impact. Wow. So, uh, in data science, what are these kinds of opportunities? Uh, so what are the problems in data science that can make an outsized impact, but maybe also are being neglected today? So I might almost, yeah, I might almost approach it from an even bigger picture perspective, which is just like, <laughs> okay. in the world, what are the most pressing problems? And then how can I use data science to best contribute to them? Um, and so you can kind of, you know, there's like two philosophies of careers advice in a way. One is like, start from what the world needs and work backwards. And the other is like, start from what I have to offer and then kind of work forwards. And most careers advice is just focused on that, like very person focused approach where it's like, well, what are you, what are your, what are your interests? What are your skills, strengths, those kinds of things? And how can you use them? And that is a really important part of the equation, but we actually think it's kind of almost more important to think about what the world most needs and what contributions will be most valuable and then work back from those. I guess with data scientists, especially, you know, so if you're, considering a career in data science, and especially if you already are a data scientist, you have a broadly useful skill set. I've worked in, so since we had that conversation years ago, I first worked in the ad tech area, and even as a trader, I mean, I was basically using data science skills. I didn't call it at that time, but I was a quantitative trader. I was using data science skills for working in finance, working in advertising, and then now the last seven years or whatever, it's been in human resources and operations. And so a data scientist has a skill set that, uh, that can be applied to tackle any kinds of problems that generate data. And with the way that the world is going exactly. with every 18 months as having twice as much data, uh, you know, we have more and more sensors collecting different kinds of data on more and more and more problems. And so, the, so a data scientist who's listening today, you already have this skill set that you can be applying to almost any industry you like. And so I think, especially in this kind of circumstance, it makes sense to think about things in that, uh, in that backwards way uh, from what society most needs if you wanna have the biggest impact. So hit us, Ben, what, yeah. where can we make the most <laughs> That's impact? That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, so I have some more, like I, do, I think there are some more specific things for data scientists that we could get onto. Um, but then, yeah, just to like slightly expand on your point. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, we have a job board on, on 80,000 hours and we have a bunch of different problem areas and there's jobs within each. And you can filter that by software engineering jobs. And actually some of them are, some of them are actually data science jobs. So um, like one example is there's this uh, really interesting organization called ID Insight that basically does like data consulting for people working in development. So it helps them like evaluate, measure their programs. And they're, they're hiring data scientists right now. Um, so by development, a, that's like, uh, that's like global development. It's like, uh, yeah. 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 So, so like yeah. fighting malaria and stuff like that. Um, nice, nice. and actually we have a whole episode about, um, using data science in global development on our podcast. Um, so that's like, that would be a thing to check out. Um, cool. 
the yeah. 80,000 hours podcast. <laughs> yeah. So that's with, uh, that's, if you search like 80,000 hours podcast data science off here, Reich, then that's, uh, that's all about um, data science and development. Um, yeah. And there's lots of examples. I think I was wondering if another person you might want to get on your podcast is, um, the founder of Bayes Impact. I don't know if you've come across them, but they're actually another Y Combinator oh. non-pro. They went through Y Combinator as well. And they're, they were a data science consultancy for social services. So, um, you know, they do things like help fire services optimize their algorithms so they can respond to fires faster. Um, cool. But then what they've actually, the biggest thing they're doing now is they created like a automated careers advice um, service for the French government. And I think they've had like a million users or something. Wow. Uh, so they, yeah, they, they do government consulting basically for data science. Um, Very cool. So yeah, and I love and then, and then also, yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, Bayes, that's like one of our big principles is like thinking in a Bayesian way. Um, no kidding. Yeah. This company at 80,000 hours, you think about the world in a Bayesian way. Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's kind of one of the biggest problems of our time because people, you know, like you could kind of see this with the COVID pandemic where, you know, when they were saying like, should we space out the vaccines? Loads of people were like, well, but we have no evidence that one vaccine shot will work. But like, no, we do have evidence. It's just, we don't have like a randomized control trial specifically about that. But like right. the whole, the way, the way I see Bayesianism is, is like any evidence is valuable. You just have to weight it by its strength. And right. you should, you know, you should start from your prior and you update and that, then that's your best guess. And when you're, yeah, when you're I approaching these really uncertain problems, like what's the biggest issue in the world, that's like the approach you have to take. You can't have hard data that like definitely shows that's the answer. Yeah, I think especially in circumstances like a pandemic where time is of the essence and waiting for a randomized control trial on whether one shot has an impact, uh, you know, we can't wait around. We need the injections now. So that makes a lot of sense. And just for viewers who aren't familiar with Bayesian statistics, uh, there are two main branches of statistics. There's frequentist statistics and Bayesian statistics. And throughout the 20th century, frequentist statistics was basically all that was taught to people in universities. And so if you studied stats in university, this is probably the one that you learned about where you're supposed to have this completely objective reality based on data where, you know, you, you have one group that gets the sugar pill, the other group that gets the drug, and you can compare how they respond. Uh, so you have these two distributions of data, and then you can statistically compare it. You can say, well, it looks... I have this confidence that these two distributions are different, that the treatment does have an impact relative to the, to the sugar pill, to the placebo. Bayesian statistics is older than frequentist statistics, but it fell out of favor in the early 20th century because people didn't like how in Bayesian statistics you could, although it's optional, you can optionally um, add prior information into... So you, so you, you can have your initial distributions of data be uh, created by you based on some information that you have from another experiment or just by reasoning or even a guess. And then you can update that prior distribution based on real data that you collect. And that leaves you with the posterior distribution that you can then use to make a decision. And anyway, so Carl Pearson in the early 20th century, who's a huge figure in statistics, didn't like that idea of being able to have prior information. It wasn't uh, quote unquote objective enough for him. Um, but it, in reality, like you're pointing out, Ben, like the vaccine situation, 
there's all kinds of problems where, uh, you know, we can't gather perfectly objective information anyway, or even if we can, our um, outcomes can be improved by using this outside prior information. Yeah, totally. And it's like, that's a really good description of the kind of formal debate. Um, but then I also think of Bayesianism, it's almost like a philosophy for making decisions. And um, one thing I'd, I'd really recommend on that is like Nate Silver's book has a whole chapter on how like, if you look at people who are actually really good at making forecasts in the real world, like people who bet on sports, for instance, and they, you know, they're actually being tested with real money on how good they are at predicting things. They basically take this very Bayesian style approach where they kind of start with a guess, they get a little bit of evidence, they slightly update their guess, and they kind of repeat and make lots of little updates over time. And that seems to be the best way of making actual decisions under uncertainty. It's a fabulous book, The Signal and the Noise. If uh, you haven't read it, listener, definitely do highly recommend that. <laughs> anyway, I keep taking you off track. So uh, Bayes cool. Impact. Uh, so that sounds... Yeah, and that's, yeah. And that's like a good yeah. example of also like working with governments, which I think is, you know, maybe sometimes less satisfying personally, but can be a really big route to impact. Um, and then the third kind of broad path, I would say, is like we've already mentioned the earning to give path. So you could work in, you know, you could join a startup or work in a company that and then it's kind of amazing in a way you could almost even if you have a very, very narrow skill set and you're not sure how you could get it to work on, use that to work on a most a really pressing global issue you can actually, through donating, you could kind of convert your labor into labor working on the most pressing problems and still have a really big contribution. And the reason why that's so high impact is with money, you can target it at like whichever organization in the world is like most fulfill, like filling the key bottleneck in a really pressing issue. You can get resources to that thing. So that's another route to um, yeah, having leverage and having a big impact. Cool. Um, um, yeah, shall we get... We can get into some more like specific things. So, yeah, I'd um, love to. Uh, yeah, so we, I mean, we've ended up kind of indirectly touching on data science ideas throughout the podcast, but I know you've prepared ways, uh, really well researched, uh, data driven uh, <laughs> points on how a data scientist can make a big impact. So, come on, come at us. Yeah, I mean, so if I was speaking to someone who's really just willing to change to like anything to have a big impact, you're just super mm -hmm. open. Um, then I think, and, and it's, and it's very, very relevant to data science. I think the thing I would think about the most is AI and, and what can be done there. And like one way to see that is, you know, if you survey AI scientists about when will AI be able to do like many human jobs, um, like most human jobs, um, on average, like they say, there's about a 50% chance in 45 years. So that's just kind of, that's a survey of a few hundred, um, AI researchers. That's a Nick Bostrom and, study. I'm probably mispronouncing his last name and you know how to do it correctly, but there's uh, so, uh, yeah, he, he has a really cool book. The, the study of the survey of um, AI scientists is by um, Katya Grace oh. um, and a couple of others. And yeah, we actually have a whole podcast episode just about that survey. So I'm sure there's lots of people listening who are like, that sounds bullshit in these ways, but yeah, we, <laughs> we have like two hours more just about that. If you want to, what's that episode <laughs> called or how can we find that one? So yeah, Kadya Grace, I think it would, if you search for like AI timelines or something like AI survey, you'd probably nice. be able to find it. It's probably more right. recent. There was, I, I quote this study from, it's almost a decade ago now that Nick Bostrom did at, a, at an AI conference interviewing people and when they thought we would have an artificial general intelligence that could learn mm. uh, the same kinds of tasks as a person. And it was the same kind of number. So I thought it was that one, but uh, it sounds like Kadya Grace. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so it. she... 
yeah, she tried to kind of do a more rigorous version of that, that kind of initial poll. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, they do tend, it has come out in a similar figure. So, so yeah, 45 years time was like, that's the median estimate. But I mean, there's still like a 10 or 20% chance that it's in like 10 or 20 years. You know, people are thinking maybe, maybe GDP three, maybe that kind of just like is how human reasoning works. And if we just scale that like a hundred fold with a bunch more computing power, which we'll have soon, then maybe, you know, you just basically unlock a ton of stuff. Um, we're not sure. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the one way of like approaching that is like, it's almost like we're being told that like aliens are going to arrive on the earth in our potentially in our lifetimes, like with a 20% chance. Um, like right. it would definitely be one of the biggest things to happen in all history. Um, right. if there was now agent, like systems that were more intelligent than, than us. Um, so yeah, so I think trying to think about how can you make that transition go well, could well be one of the most important things that people can work on ah, at this point. Um, I see. yeah. And so if in that same survey of Katya Grace, they also asked the researchers, you know, when this transition happens, how likely is it to be good versus bad? And most of them said it was going to be good, but 5% of them, they said there was a 5% chance that it could be extremely bad, such as human extinction. And right. it's, I can't really think of another field where the actual people working in the field would say that there's a 5% chance that their field ends the world. <laughs> um, but that's where, we, that's, that's where we are. Right. Um, so yeah, so there's at, at the same time, it's also still a very neglected problem. Like it's really grown a lot. There's, there's now this whole field of research that's sometimes called AI alignment research, um, mm. or the control problem. And another really good book about that is just called AI alignment by Brian Christian, who's written a lot of actually really cool books about computer science. And I was a big fan of algorithms to live by, which is all about like how to apply computer science to everyday decisions. Um, so that, yeah, that, that one's, cool that one's, that last book there has come up is, uh, the book recommendation. So we always ask at the end of the show for book recommendation and that, uh, algorithms to live by has probably come up. I've only been hosting the show since January and it's come up a couple of times, including in the most recent <laughs> okay. episode, episode number 495. <laughs> so people love that book. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an, it's an awesome book. It's like so well crafted. Um, but yeah, he wrote a new book called AI alignment, which is all about, um, this topic of how can we make sure that AI systems do as we intend and are in line with human values as they get more and more powerful. Mm, I was going to ask why, what alignment means there. I see alignment with like our values. Got it. And so I guess like AI ethics is, is something different entirely. I was initially thinking that this is kind of AI ethics, but AI ethics is something about like, we need to make sure that our algorithms are treating different demographic groups fairly. Um, it isn't about machines eating our brains. <laughs> <laughs> well, They're I the would best say, energy yeah. source around. <laughs> oh no. Well, um, I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately <laughs> we won't be, but um, yeah, no, I mean, AI, you could think of AI ethics as a, that's a broad, that's a very broad category that includes many important issues. And then I would say al alignment is a subset of AI ethics and, you know, the, the approach we're trying to ultimately take is like, what are the biggest issues like maybe in history that we might be able to help with and are being neglected? And, you know, I, I think it's these like longer term issues that are more, even more kind of important when we step back and take that really big picture perspective. Nice. Cool. So AI alignment, that sounds huge. Um, yeah, but there's a lot of like, just very, just practical jobs that you can go and take in this. So there's now 
teams doing research in AI alignment in like DeepMind, OpenAI, Anthropic, which was like a team who just recently left OpenAI, um, Google Brain, academic centers like um, Berkeley's, uh, so Stuart Russell's group at Berkeley is doing this research. Um, there's a non-profit Oort, Miri. Uh, so Miri is based in Berkeley and Oort's based in San Francisco. And yeah, all of these groups are hiring what, like they're hiring ML engineers to help them run the models. So they, they, they all have these different research programs to try and improve AI alignment. And um, yeah, they're hiring lots of software engineers and data scientists. And so we actually, again, have a whole podcast episode all about if you're a software engineer or a data scientist, how can you transition into these, these roles specifically? And we have like a whole right. guide to like a reading cool. list and yeah. <laughs> um, Amazing. It's, yeah. It's possible to do it pretty quickly. Like, so one of the people who's interviewed Daniel Ziegler, he just like every day he read, he read a paper and then like every week he tried to implement a model from one of the papers. And I think he did that for a few months and then he like got a job at um, OpenAI. Wow. Which uh, podcast is that? <laughs> um, so yeah if you search for like ml engineering so it's with katherine olsen and daniel ziegler uh, they were both uh katherine uh, olsen was at google brain um and yeah like super um, practical guide all right so that's yeah that's quite practical guidance so you also you have a note here i can i can see ben's notes he shared them with me in google drive just like he did years ago <laughs> he was helping me with my career and uh you have this in square brackets, I guess you weren't going to talk about it as chimps versus humans, but I love this because it shows the importance of AI alignment. Because I think if if people are, um, you know, you might think to yourself, why is AI a danger? You know, we're going to, we want it to be making us, giving us self-driving cars and solving medical issues. Like, why would it be a problem? And this chimps versus humans thing, I think I first read about this in uh, Wait But Why, uh, Tim Urban's mm. blog. Um, but I, I'm so I think I know what it is, but I don't want to steal your show. So tell <laughs> us about the chimps versus humans thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just the idea that, you know, chimps are actually like way stronger than us. Like if you get in a fight with a chimp, you've got no chance. Um, but, you know, there's basically, there's not that many of them on the world and their fate just is in our hands. And that's right. because, you know, we're much, we have much more intelligence. And if there was like kind of other systems that were more intelligent than us, then, you know, we basically become the chimps <laughs> um, and like they, they're, they're the humans then in this analogy. Yeah. But it's actually, so like, you know, relative to all of the other intelligent beings on our planet, chimps are like really close to us. Like their intellectual capacity is super close. So I think the way that uh, Tim Urban in his Wait But Why blog post about it, um, I think the blog post is called something like the artificial intelligence revolution. And he, I don't know if he got this from somebody else, but he, he draws a cartoon of a staircase. And it's this idea that's like this evolutionary staircase where, um, I don't know, you've got like insects really down at the bottom. But if you put, if you go to the human step, chimps are like one step behind. Very, very similar intelligence levels, um, highly complex creatures. Potentially, yeah, there's even some evidence that it's just like a few mutations that caused the neocortex to fold a bunch more. And that gave you human brains. So it's, yeah. you know, it's not Sounds in right. evolutionary terms, it's not a big step away. Not a big step at all. Whereas something like an artificial general intelligence, as soon as we engineer that, it could have, it could instantly, like maybe it'll take a month or maybe it'll take an hour or a minute. It could engineer itself 
to be more intelligent than people. And then all of a sudden you have this artificial super intelligence, which we probably can't even describe uh, in the same way that a chimp can't describe a symphony or poetry or a computer program. There's just no chance. You're never going to get a chimp to write a computer program and you can't explain it at all. And so an artificial superintelligence could be in the same way, just having ideas or I don't know if that's the right word for a machine, but um, it, it, it has cognitive capacities that we just can't even get anywhere close to imagining. But unlike your scenario of just a couple of genetic mutations and being next to each other on this uh, intelligence staircase, the artificial superintelligence could be 10, 20, 30 steps above us and just, you know, we're just nothing to it. We're an insect. Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't, we don't know how far capacities could go. Um, but um, yeah, one thing I'll just add is like, there might be some, there's probably some listeners thinking like, you know, this is sounding a bit wacky. Um, and I would say like <laughs> this kind of the scenario you're kind of painting there is uh, that's kind of quite associated with Nick Bostrom. And I think that is like right. a, that is one of the like key risks to bear in mind, but there's actually like many other scenarios that where AI could be this really huge deal. And like, if you kind of another, almost like the opposite end of the scale is this framing where it's more like, you know, what we're doing today is we're kind of handing more and more control over to algorithms, like more and more things in society are run by algorithms. And like that process could well continue. Um, well, it's gonna, it's almost definitely gonna continue. And like that then relies on like, are those algorithms like definitely doing exactly what we want? Like, you know, it seems like they oh, often yeah. do things we don't want. Like they get us addicted yeah. to Twitter <laughs> um, <laughs> right. and like, as these algorithms get more and more powerful and better at doing things like getting us addicted to Twitter, even if there's just like a small difference between what we would ideally want and what these algorithms are doing, that could over time kind of gradually lead us further and further away from the world that we would want. And that's like a very gradualist view of yeah. the thing rather than this kind yeah. of fast takeoff style thing. And Ben, you don't need to you don't need to look to a dystopian future to imagine a scenario where the <laughs> algorithms aren't doing what we want. We have that today in all kinds yeah. of very dramatic ways. Uh, in a lot of countries around the world, including where I happen to live right now, the United States, where I can't vote, but I live. And so I experience the incredibly divisive politics here, which if we still had newspapers that were providing two sides to a lot of the political issues, you'd have a lot of people who were educated on both sides of the issues and thought both were kind of had their pros and cons. But because of algorithms like the Facebook newsfeed and uh, Google's news prioritization, and you have completely different camps of people who see the world in completely different ways and can't even imagine being in the other person's shoes. And then all of a sudden you have people uh, riding in your government buildings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, people who've maybe heard, you might've heard about some of the kind of Nick Bostrom stuff before and the more like kind of early on in AI safety, people were talking about those scenarios more, but a lot of the current AI alignment research, it's just focused on problems that we face right now. Like, right. Um, you know, ad adversarial examples, like how do we make sure ML systems don't give us like entirely the wrong answer if you just make a like tiny tweak to them. Um, and then, but then like many of these then relate, these kind of short term issues also relate to potentially like longer term alignment issues as well. And so there's a kind of spectrum of work to be done and, you know, we need, we need some of all of it. Super interesting. Well, I don't want to take too much more time on this point. I guess I could, I mean, we could have an entire episode about it, but you already have it. <laughs> so uh, I'll refer listeners to that uh, episode uh, instead. Uh, maybe you can mention the 
the guests that we're on it against, they can easily look it up and we'll have it in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. Catherine Olson and Daniel Ziegler. Right. Nice. And so I have all kinds of questions like, <laughs> what are the other skill sets that you need if you want to get into this field? But I think we'll just, maybe if you have like one or two of those, uh, just like one or two of those, and then we'll move on to the next topic. Uh, just, you know, so other, so if somebody's already a data scientist or a machine learning engineer, software engineer, and they want to get into AI alignment, what are the key, what are the key things that they need to learn to be, to be getting into that field? So for the, well, so many of the roles are just basically ML engineering roles. So right, you just need right. that, basically that exact skill set, And then you oh, can go, okay. you could, and, and, and then, and then you need to learn about the current research within AI alignment. Um, and so, yeah, I think you should be able to find a reading list through our resources of nice. like all the most important papers. Cool. Um, all right. So what else, how, how else can a data scientist make a big impact? Well, yeah, if we set AI aside, then so, yeah. So in terms of the problems that we personally think are most biggest and most neglected, we, a big cluster we focus on and we call it like global catastrophic risks. So it's like things that could be global in scope and they often tend to be very neglected. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we put AI accidents and AI alignment and how to make AI go well as one of the top kind of things in that category. But then another, like a second most ranked one is um, kind of preventing a pandemic even worse than COVID-19. Right. And so, yeah, we, we are encouraging people to go and work on pandemic prevention. We had our first guide to that in 2016. And um, yeah, I mean, I think now it's almost like this is it's actually even maybe even more pressing because people know that this is an issue. And so there's a lot more resources available for these to work in this area. But there's like a real risk right now that a lot of the efforts go into preventing things that are kind of similar to COVID. Like that's normally right. what happens is people just, right. they, they fight the last battle. And like, you know, previously all of the US's biosecurity efforts were focused on anthrax. Um, Cause you know, there happened to be that terrorist scare. So then all the budget is on anthrax, even though that's only like one of like many, many diseases that could be a threat to national security. Right. Um, and so, yeah, now I'm really keen to make sure when we do all this work to do pan pandemic prevention, can we make sure that it's guarding against all the different varieties of pandemics we could face? And in particular, it's guarding against one that could be much worse than COVID because COVID nowhere near represents the worst case scenario for a pandemic. Like it yeah, would be right. perfectly I mean, possible for one that's... Yeah, it's been horrible, but... Yeah, it, just as, just yeah, as, <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know hospitals being overrun it ended up in most regions actually being avoided through um through interventions uh but there could well, and, very and, well be yeah and Go we ahead. just know that there have been diseases that were in very very infectious but had a fatality rate of 10 or even 50 percent whereas covid right. was only one percent and it's right. not really clear that people would still be willing to like stock shelves in a supermarket if you know it was like a 30 percent chance of dying if you caught it rather than a one percent right Right. Oh my goodness. I didn't even think of that. Like all of the shortages that we have today in the service industry that has been precipitated by COVID, even though now, at least where I live in New York, uh, most people are vaccinated. We still have these issues around staffing shortages uh, in the hospitality industry. And wow. Yeah. If the, if the fatality rate was 10% or 30%, like why would you go outside? Yeah. Why would you stock a shelf at all? And we don't have robots that can do it yet. <laughs> Yeah. 
so yeah, we we so we call we call those like global catastrophic bio risks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing. I don't know what else can you do. That's uh, that's that's often yeah. that happens to be the arguments. Like somebody will be upset with me, and I laugh. I'm just like I don't know what to do. I don't know what else to do. Well, okay, um, yeah. I mean, so we have a whole guide to what you can do about it. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, ah, good point. And I think um, I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of jobs for um. There's a lot of jobs involving statistics and data science within within the whole um, biomedical sciences area, and in, in particular within pandemic prevention is one I kind of subfield I'd particularly encourage people to think about. Nice, and I can see from your notes that I still have open in front of me that there's at least one more that you might like to talk about. Oh uh, yeah, I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of other interesting ones. Um, yeah, I mean, we kind of we kind of mentioned this one already, but um, just on our job board, there's there's open data science jobs oh, and the, many of those. The information we... security one. Oh yeah, That's yeah, cool no. One. So <laughs> yeah, this one's like a little bit harder to explain, but we do have a short write up on the website if you're interested, and if anyone is, you know, then there might well be people listening. You have a security background. No um, doubt. It seems. I mean, it's a. I mean, it's also just a thing to actually really consider working on because it seems to be a skill set that's in really high demand right now. Yeah, um, huge. It seems like, yeah, with with just one or two years of of retraining in that, you could, there's like pretty high salaries available for these positions. And then I also think, uh, you know, if you're interested in issues like artificial intelligence and syn synthetic biology and so on, it is going to be important in the future that there's good information security around uh, these kinds of technologies, um, you know, that there's, there's groups who are working on like, like bioengineering and like various types and like that, that knowledge could be dangerous if it gets out. But like right now, information security is like very weak. Like basically anyone who's any determined attacker can steal like most things. Um, and so in a, in a world where there's like very powerful technologies out there and there existing algorithms it that doesn't seem so stable. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, there's also a kind of a more prosaic end of this thing where it's like, you know, could there be big computer viruses that could pose systemic risks, um, to society as well. And yeah, we have a whole, we're sorry to keep pitching our podcast, but we have, we do have a whole podcast episode about no, that. With, um, great. Obviously <laughs> our audience is into podcasts. And so if you can give them this information in a nice podcast format, I'm sure there's tons that are interested. You can mention as many episodes as you'd like. Okay, yeah. So it's with Bree Schneider, who I think is like one of the kind of big people in information security, and it's like a whole episode all about, yeah, what how that can be valuable for society and and how to get started in that career. Super cool. Well, all right. So we've covered uh, data science specific areas where data scientists can have a particularly large impact, but uh, data scientists as well as any other listeners could probably benefit from any general strategies, any general guidance that you have on how someone can strategize about their career. I had this incredible opportunity, whatever, seven years ago to get on a call with you for an hour, but you can't do that with everyone on the planet. So what can they do? Well, so we, we do actually still have one-on-one -on -one advising on the website. No way. Wow. Um, so, so you can, if, if you're a listener, you can apply uh, to that. And so, yeah, we, we have about 600 slots this year. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's an application process because it's free. Um, 
but yeah, and it, so it's particularly aimed at people who want to work on the problem areas that we're most excited about, just because we have this limited capacity. But if, if that's you, then I definitely encourage people to apply. Um, and then, yeah, with, with career strategy, well, we've already talked about one thing, which is like the importance of building career capital early. Um, and then, yeah, we've just been kind of talking about all these kind of potentially high impact options and like what are the world's biggest problems? And that can often feel a bit overwhelming. And so I would see those as like, those are things you can aim for. And it's, it's like really useful to have some long-term aims to aim for. But then when it comes to kind of actual career strategy, it's really important as well to just think a lot about like, what am I going to do in the next one or two years? Like try and make it really, really concrete. And when you're like doing that, you can be thinking like, how can I test out a particular long-term option? How can I get some valuable skills? And then, you know, after you've done that for a while, you can reassess and like, you know, good careers are much more this iterative thing where you do something for a few years, you get some career capital, you learn some information about what's going to be best for you. And then you try again and you kind of like gradually improve over time with some kind of longer term vision in mind. But, you know, that that can easily change and you learn more about it as you go. Cool. That is a really great strategy. And it's really reassuring to know that we don't peak in our 30s <laughs> unless uh, we're looking to win the Fields Medal for mathematics. Uh, I guess my time is it's slowly <laughs> creeping away on me each day. But that um, by building career capital early and then following this kind of strategy of having a long-term goal, but iterative, iterating in these kind of one to three year chunks, um, almost no matter what our age is, it sounds like um, our peak productivity is can be really later in life. And so that's really nice to know. Um, so there's one thing that we, we didn't talk about discussing on this program, but is something 80,000 hours related that I read years ago and that was hugely beneficial to me. And so if you remember about this, I'd be interested in you sharing it with listeners, which is what are the top skills that people should learn period. So I remember seeing this, it's this really well-researched 80,000 hours article. And um, number one was like learning how to learn or something. Mm, um, yeah, I think if I remember right correctly. So actually, yeah, we did, we actually did that research with, um, it was with a data science bootcamp. So it was someone who was doing an internship at one of these data science bootcamps and he did the analysis for us. Um, and cool. what he did is he took the, the U S has this big data set, um, I think it's the ONET data set. So it has like, yeah, uh, I think like, you know, 700 jobs and it has like what skills they need and the salaries and like a bunch of data about them. Um, and we basically, we kind of like looked at the jobs that were highest paid um, and like looked at what skills were most needed in them. And I think we also looked at the jobs that people found most satisfying and looked at what skills were most needed in them. And we also looked at what skills were most transferable. So which ones would show up in the largest number of jobs. And then we use this to make an index of which skills seemed most valuable. And I think if I remember correctly, the top one was actually judgment, <laughs> um, uh. which is like, maybe, I mean, yeah, maybe not that helpful, but I mean, it is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like one thing we did, one thing that did stick out in that analysis. Yeah. So we also tried to look at it, like the, the skills that seem most valuable are actually often soft skills. Um, or, you know, more problem solving, learning how to learn, judgment, productivity, these kind of general skills. Um, 
And actually some of the more technical skills, like kind of STEM skill sets were a bit lower, um, which might not be the best thing to say on a data science podcast. But <laughs> I think one thing is that the STEM skills are probably, they're, they're easier to improve. So they could still be very cost-effective skills to learn, even if they're not the most valuable or considered. And then another thing that analysis showed is that actually it seems like there's evidence that the sweet spot these days, like this, the, the, the ones where there's the most growth is people, place, places where you have both technical and soft skills. Mm. And so it's that overlap that, which I think makes a lot of sense if you think about the future of automation, because right. a lot of basic kind of data analysis is basically being automated because, you know, we just have R now and, you know, stuff that would have like taken a lot longer in the past. We can just, you know, it's much easier and that's going to continue. So the role of people doing data analysis becomes much more about figuring out like, well, what actually is the problem in the first place? Like what analysis would even be helpful? And then it's like explaining that analysis to people and figuring out how to apply it to real business problems. And so, yeah, if you, if you can combine those both hard skills and soft skills, it seems like a good, good spot at this point. Cool. Great takeaways, Ben. Um, so I'm sure, I mean, we literally could have this podcast go on for hours. And so I would like to definitely have you on again sometime. And we can talk about maybe things like have an AI alignment specific episode or something like that. But for now, uh, we're going to start wrapping up. So uh, what is the gannet of ways that people can get involved with 80,000 hours? Yeah, so we've mentioned a bunch of them. Uh, yeah. So we mentioned the job board already. We mentioned the one-on-one -on -one advice. And yeah. then another one I would add is we have a bunch of online guides on the site. And the first one is called the Key Ideas Guide, which is more about like the big concepts. How do you actually compare careers in terms of impact? And then we have a list of problems that we think are unusually big and neglected, um, covering some of the ones we've talked about, but actually we have this whole long other list of like 20 other problems that we didn't touch on today. Um, and then like career paths that seem high impact. And then actually maybe more importantly, we also have now this career planning course. So it's like an eight week course and each week there's like an article to read and then it gives you some questions to answer about your career. And at the end, and there's like an attached worksheet. And at the end, you have a whole complete career plan. So that's, that's designed cool. to kind of help you take all these like giant considerations and actually figure out an in individual plan based on them. Awesome. And obviously all the podcast episodes too. <laughs> yeah. No, the podcast, yeah, the po podcast is good to check out. Um, and yeah, like maybe I, I know all, all, everything, everything we provide is free as well because um, we're all funded by donations. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have personally benefited a fair bit from uh, resources that you provide. Um, so yeah, so thanks so much to you and everyone at 80,000 Hours for the work that you do, uh, the impact that you've made on me personally and surely to many listeners today and you know the thousands of other people out there. Uh, it's really awesome, Ben. So I'm glad that you made that decision uh, <laughs> uh, back in 2012 to go down this path. So uh, we've talked about uh, quite a few books, actually, in this episode already. Uh, Nate Silver's Signal in the Noise. We had the AI Alignment book. There's others that I'm just aren't immediately coming to mind. But do you have a particular book recommendation on top of all those? Yeah, one I'd really recommend, which came out last year, is called The Precipice. Uh, it's by Toby Ord, who um, is yeah one, one of our trustees. And... Mm -hmm. 
it is well so his idea is that like the next century or so it seems like we've entered this new age in humanity which he calls the precipice and like one way of seeing it is like technology has developed to the point where we can actually end civilization <laughs> like we have nuclear weapons we have runaway climate change um we have pandemics um and so at the same time though we like haven't really developed the wisdom to like make sure we don't do that <laughs> um, right so it seems like we're in this unusually risky time in history and you know this means that for people listening you know maybe you can help with these challenges that are literally of his historical importance because if we get this if we navigate this time successfully then like we don't know how long things could last but like way way longer there could be far more people in the future than alive today um but we could also mess it all up and you know there's been hundreds of thousands of generations before us and we're the ones who like dropped the baton um so that that really is a big thing motivating our work um and then one thing i also really like about that is this final book the final chapter is called our potential and that's just one thing i wanted to make sure i also mentioned that is like yeah we've talked a bunch about like these kind of risks and things that could go wrong but another thing that really does motivate me is just like how much better could the future be and yeah, yeah and i think it is like kind of like you were saying with the the chimps versus human stuff earlier it's not even clear that we can kind of like really imagine how like good life could get and right. so i think it's I, I see it as like this kind of there's this there's these two extremes that all these technologies could both make things like way better than we know today but they also pose these big risks and the job of our generation to try and tilt it more in the good direction uh, rather than the uh, the bad one. Yeah, and there's there's countless examples that are data driven on how the world has improved over the last couple of centuries, but how things are still awful and they could get way better. And you actually you made a LinkedIn post uh, recently <laughs> at the time of recording about that. And I clicked through and I read a whole bunch and I made a whole podcast episode about it. So episode. 492. Uh, it's called The World is Awful and It's Never Been Better. And I cite you and I cite uh, oh, awesome. Max Roser. Or Max, Max Roser, Rosen. yeah. He's awesome. Awesome, yeah. Um, if, so, founder of Our World in Data, uh, org, And I'd actually, yeah, I've they're, been. They're probably hiring data scientists too. So, I probably should have mentioned them earlier. <laughs> there you go. A really cool company. I've, I've been using charts from Our World in Data, org in my deep learning course for years. So, I kind of do in the same way that we're kind of rounding out this podcast episode and in the same way that uh you know you're talking about that book chapter in the precipice uh when i do my 30-hour deep learning course the final lecture like kind of the final half hour i bring out a whole bunch of charts from ourworldanddata.org i didn't know the connection to you at the time that i was doing this i've been doing it for years and i show across the board in terms of literacy child mortality which is the big one that i focus on in episode 492 um in terms of longevity, in terms of um, democracy, death in conflict, uh, domestic violence, uh, you know, across so many measures, the world was unimaginably awful only just a few generations ago. And so while there still are awful things going on today, um, it's not evenly distributed. So there's a lot of, you know, uh, you and I, uh, Ben and me, we happen to live in you know, in terms of the planet today, we're very fortunate where we live, but it's not evenly distributed even today. Um, so there's that huge opportunity of just kind of leveling the playing field more. 
And then beyond that, like you're saying, like you're alluding to, it's crazy given the progress that we've made over the last two centuries, as long as we don't drop the baton, like you say, uh, things could be unimaginably good for us in our lifetime and certainly for the generations after us. So very cool. Well, cool. I just Seems have one like last question. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I mean, I should probably be letting you make a big uh, final point. So if you have any other ones that come up in the next few seconds, uh, I have uh, one last question for you, which is just, a sim- just simply how should people follow you? Obviously, you have a huge amount of insight. I personally gain from following you on social media uh, in the posts you make. So how can others do the same? Yeah, so I've I've been posting kind of in-progress research ideas on Twitter recently. That's probably the best thing. Um, but yeah, I also have LinkedIn. I've been posting on LinkedIn as well. And um, benjamintodd.org has a kind of everything else, um, some of my past writing. Nice. Well, we will, as always, include those social media links and your website link in the show notes. Ben, I think it goes without saying that this has been an awesome episode. I've really enjoyed having you on and yeah, hope to have you on again sometime soon. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much. Well, I'm sure I don't need to say it explicitly, but I have a huge amount of respect for Ben and the work that he does at 80,000 hours. And my goodness, is he ever able to effectively communicate to us how we can adjust our career path in an ever more personally meaningful and globally impactful direction. In today's episode, Ben covered the relative value of building career capital as opposed to financial capital, especially if we're early in our career. He talked about how identifying career avenues that are impactful as well as neglected is a solid general strategy for success. He covered how particularly neglected but hugely impactful application areas for a data science skill set are areas such as AI alignment, pandemic prevention, and information security. He covered the effective career strategy of iterating in one to three year chunks toward a long-term goal. And we talked about how job description data suggests that the most valuable career skills are soft ones like judgment, productivity, and learning how to learn, but that the most career growth potential lies where technical and soft skills intersect. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Ben's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 497. That's superdatascience.com 497. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel where we have a video version of this episode. To let me know your thoughts on the episode directly, please do feel welcome to add me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tag me in a post to let me know your thoughts on this episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover next. All right, thank you to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing an extra special episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.